From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Mitch Pacwa. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Wednesday. Tremendous Wednesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. I think you've only got one more of these. Only one more of these in ordinary time, if I'm not mistaken. Then we're into Lent. I believe two weeks from today we are uh, we are into Lent. So start to make your preparations now. Did you do the homework that I just asked you? Mm-hmm. Is it singular or plural? You just finish up your okay. job, and then I'll get to mine. Very good. Father Mitch, as you can hear, is in the house. We've already started discussing sacred scripture, so if you have a question, get in line behind me. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985 and you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams Michael McCall producing the program your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson how am I doing he's retired Ace McKay is our social media maven, checking things out on YouTube and Facebook Live. So if you're watching us there, type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Father Mitch Paqua, how are you? Fine. Singular or plural? I'm singular. There's only one of me. (laughs) Where there were multiple ones, there's usually (laughs) demon-possessed. What about enmity? Okay, or so what, explain your question so people know what I'm talking about. So in Genesis 3.15, uh, Sacred Scripture talks about the first consequence mm-hmm. of the fall in the garden is meted out to the evil one. Mm-hmm. And he is told that there would be this thing, either enmity or enmities, placed between him and the woman. Yes. And every... You know, I certainly have not looked up an exhaustive list of translations, but every translation that I have looked at, with the exception of one, says enmity, mm-hmm. and then the Dewey Rames says enmities. So I thought I would ask the person with the most knowledge in this area that I know personally, and that's you. Well, I'm glad that you posed the question even more precisely, because uh, in Hebrew... It's oeva, singular. In Greek, it's echthran, singular. But in the Vulgate, it's inimicitias. Inimicitias. And that is plural. So you're blaming Jerome. I'm describing what I see in front of my eyes. I do Who this I do I? this to my people constantly. I always tell them, mm-hmm. don't tell the engineers what you think the problem is. Mm-hmm. Just tell them what you're experiencing. Exactly. I just 
Deal with the data. So there. I've broken my own rule. Yes. <laughs> so um, pass that on to the engineers, Michael. <laughs> Let them know that they're safe from now on. They've got an excuse. Uh, yes, it's enemy chitias ponam interte et mulierum. So it's enmities in the Latin. And so when they translated the Dueyrims, they went from the Latin instead of from the They went from the, the Vulgate. Hebrew. And the person that I heard explaining this made that very <laughs> distinction. Yes. That enmities is in the Dueyrims because the Dueyrims is taken from the Vulgate. Mm-hmm. So very and so, good. Uh, and you know, and when you say, you know, when you wonder why did St. Jerome do that, we don't know. But it is possible that he had a Hebrew manuscript that had it in the plural. That's possible. I don't, there, there's you know, our. What, there oldest, wasn't any photocopying going on back then, was no, there? No, and <laughs> our oldest complete copy of the Old Testament in Hebrew is from the 10th century A.D. That is a good 600 years after St. Jerome. And he could have had a manuscript uh, that said otherwise. Secondly, he uh, he had studied Hebrew. Um, uh, I, one of the reasons I like St. Jerome uh, is... Uh, you know, he was cranky and still became a saint. <laughs> but also, also, he was someone who, uh, and tr- be careful where you apply this principle. <laughs> However, uh, he had lots of temptations with lust. He had committed lots of sins of lust. He would um, go to the the. Uh, the wine halls, they didn't have beer halls, but uh, he'd go see all the dancing girls every Saturday night. And then on Sunday, he'd go to the catacombs in order to get frightened out of his wits. He was a little odd as a teenager, but I already said teenager, that explains odd in a number of them, not all, but many. So he would do that. And <coughs> after his con- <coughs> conversion... <coughs> He still, <coughs> he still had trouble with those temptations. So um, he decided to study Hebrew every time he experienced temptations to lust. How about that? He became the greatest Hebrew <laughs> scholar of the first 1,500 years of the church. I have suggested to my students when I was a professor that were they to apply that same principle in their own lives, they could solve global warming, the energy crisis, hunger, and who knows what else. Cancer. They could do it. Just use this principle. Every time you experience temptations to lust, study. So it sounds like this is not the first time you have pondered this question over this word in Genesis three fifteen. Um, well, I mean, I've been aware of it, had to translate it many times, but that's all I know. Very good. You got some emails over there? I do. Now that I've chewed um, up half of the yes. email time? Yes. So Ariel says, we know that Mary is the only human to have ever lived without sin, but do we have any evidence of St. Joseph sinning? Could he have been sinless as well? 
we have no evidence one way or the other that he sinned or did not sin. And as you would tell engineers, despite your own example, I don't make up data. I just point out what I see, uh, and I would rather just stay that way. Linda asks, why do we go from the word cup to chalice in the liturgy? The um, word in the uh, liturgy in original Latin of the, the liturgy is calyx, and chalice translates that. Now, um, yeah, it, it's a slightly more formal word, but calyx uh, is, you know, a chalice. And our word chalice comes from colleagues. That's the root of chalice. So we're just staying a little bit closer to the Latin, uh, a problem that was addressed, when, it, especially when a number of young priests and others, including Father Fessio, were realizing that there were problems with the translation that came out in the early 1970s. Bernard asks, is there a non-literal way to interpret the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22? Um, I don't know. Could be, but I don't know what it would be. Uh, so what is the significance of this story? First of all, you have to keep in mind, the ancients uh, in the, the Bronze Age and even into the Iron Age, um, uh, in especially in the land of Canaan, uh, considered it a good thing to sacrifice their sons to the gods. That was not unusual. A number of baby skeletons are found in large jars buried under door, uh, doorways of houses as if it would be a protecting spirit and such. So this was not so unusual uh, in their culture. And as uh, a result, Abram would have taken that for, uh, for granted. But the two things, it's a test to see whether Abram would be obedient, at which point then his name will, uh, you know, he'll be given a whole new trust by God. Secondly, it also is a passage that prohibits human sacrifice. And, they, and Israelites are not allowed is to do that. Is it typed? Oh, well, yeah, sure. As a matter of fact, you see uh, on Calvary that there is an, uh, a picture of the sacrifice of Isaac right next to Mount Calvary. It's Open Line Wednesday with Father Mitch. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, we're just two weeks out from Ash Wednesday. It's a great time to start to prepare for Lent. The Ashtag Examination of Conscience is a three-day devotional candle encased in a sturdy glass holder. It's available for you at EWTN's Religious Catalog. The image of three crosses on the front reminds us of Ash Wednesday and the Jewish tradition of penance and fasting. 
On the back of the candle is the examination of conscience and a penitential act prayer. Once it's blessed by a priest, the candle can be used as a sacramental. Many styles of three-day candles are available, so visit EWTNRC.com to see them all and receive a discount when you purchase three or more. They're available now at EWTNRC.com. They're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That is standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. Got some open lines for you for Father Mitch at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Justin is first up today. He's in Des Moines, Iowa, listening on Iowa Catholic Radio. Justin, you're on with Father Mitch. Hi, and thanks for uh, taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, I have a call. Yeah, uh, my stepson, we have him set up. He's going to enter the church on Sunday and get baptized. Now, his mom's sister, she subscribes to a version of Protestantism. Okay. And she posed the question on whether or not he was saved before he goes through baptism. So I understand the meanings of baptism on the Catholic side, but I don't understand from the Protestant side where they get this idea from. Neither do any of them. Well, one of the the problems is, um, you know, it depends on which kind of Protestant it is, because there really, there truly is a wide variety of uh, perspectives on the meaning of baptism, all the way ranging from the um, uh, Salvation Army, which doesn't baptize at all, to uh, uh, some who say that it's just uh, an ordinance, a commandment Jesus gave, but it doesn't do anything to uh, those who believe that it's, it is effective, especially in the Episcopal traditions, uh, Episcopalian and uh, most of the Methodists, uh, the majority of Methodists, by, I think officially would say that it, it, it really does affect uh, union with Christ. So um, I would—she's an evangelical— uh, uh, it's a version of a uh, Baptist, and okay. from my understanding, okay. yeah. their belief is that baptism is no more than a public proclamation, right? Giving your life right. to Jesus after you've been <clears throat> saved, right? And it's uh, something that um, uh, that they would hold it to in the Baptist Church. It's an ordinance, something that Jesus commanded. But what saves you is your act of faith. And, um, you know, here's—how uh, old is this uh, stepson? Uh, he's six. Six, okay. And um, have you talked to him much about this? Uh, yeah, yeah, his mom has, and um, this is all new to him, but he is familiar now because he is going to a Catholic school, so they get the sure. weekly masses and sure, things like sure. that. And, you know, with— a child, I, I would expect a child's act of faith. You know, uh, and this is a very important thing to communicate to your sister. Um, you know, I don't know if she uh, what, what she would think about this, but uh, you know, people go through different stages, uh, even as adults, and uh, different stages of understanding. 
And if she made her act of faith some time ago, I would assume, then I also would assume that her faith has grown. What she means by faith in Jesus Christ right now, probably, hopefully, is deeper than it was when she first was aware of making that act of faith. That, you know, so you might start there uh, with her own experience and say, look, um, you're this young man, what's his name? Uh, Maddox. Maddox. So he will be making an act of faith as best can be understood by a a six-year-old. That's fine. I don't expect him to have the act of faith of an adult. He doesn't know how to make those choices. But I think uh, you can say, uh, you know, Maddox, do you believe in Jesus? And that in being baptized, you will be joining him. Just like you're joining, you know, we're joining our family together. You can, and you could certainly use that as an analogy. Uh, I said, just like we might, we've joined together to, and you know, you're my stepson, but we're now a family. Well, you are part of Jesus' family. You belong to him. God is now going to be your father. And, you know, he can make that act of faith. Now, will he have more challenges to, to his faith and morals as he gets older. Yeah, that's most likely the case. Uh, you know, as we get older, we get uh, new temptations. That's normal. Um, he probably wouldn't be tempted to be much of an embezzler at this stage of life, but perhaps when he's 50 years old, he would be. Of course, he's going to have new temptations and such, uh, and you know, make sure that his faith, you know, guides his morals, um, and that his faith grows stronger as he makes decisions. That'll be part of life, but he can make the faith of a six-year-old. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, it does. And the thing that befuddles me is just that, because we went through Advent and all the talk of John the Baptist, who was baptizing people before Jesus Mm -hmm. was even baptized. So I don't know where this idea came from when that was explained. It was for the forgiveness of sins or to wash away the sins to where 2,000 years later, it's just, oh, something you do, and it's symbolism. It seems like everything, the Protestant world, is symbolism. Yeah. Here's where here's where that comes from. Uh, for most evangelicals, they, there's not a clear understanding of this. But the key to the Protestant Reformation is the redefinition of what it means to be a human. In the early councils. The crisis was one about who is God. How can God be one God, the only God, and yet there be three persons? That was the early kind of crises in the church. But in the Reformation, it was about what does it mean to be human? And what a number of the evangelicals taught, uh, uh, like Luther and especially Calvin, is that you do not have free will. Uh, you go to one extreme of being totally depraved, and you cannot make an, uh, any good thoughts or good decisions. Everything you do is, as Luther said, a polluted rag. Therefore, you can 
be saved by faith alone. And that comes to you by grace alone. Your free will has nothing to do with it. It's all grace making you take it. And uh, it is um, faith alone, not baptism, not good acts, not obedience to the law. They see that this baptism is an ordinance and therefore commandment, therefore part of the law, and not faith alone. And, of course, the Bible doesn't say you're saved by faith alone. It says the opposite. You are not justified by faith alone in, in James 2.24. But despite that, that was what this was all about. And that's why they don't want to see that baptism now saves you, which is what the Bible does say. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says that baptism now saves you. So that's what we're going to go with my Bible, not their ideas. God bless you, Justin. We'll keep you in our prayers. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. One open line for you at 833-288-3986. Next up is Maria in the Republic of Texas. She's in Dallas listening on Guadalupe Radio. Maria, you're on with Father Mitch. Hello, Father Mitch. Hello, Maria. What can we do for you? Yes, and may God uh, keep you, bless you, protect you in your comings and goings. I just have a question. Sure. Yes. Yep. We were having a, what is a it? Bible Yeah. The Bible study, and uh, a woman, we were talking about the precious blood of Jesus, and a woman said that we represented the blood of Jesus, and I don't understand that comment. Well, I don't understand it either. I've never heard, I don't know, uh, here's something that I would ask her, uh, twofold. One, uh, what do you mean by saying that we represent the blood of Jesus? Because um, I, I don't know what she means, I have no idea. And secondly, I'd ask her, where do you find that in sacred scripture or the tradition. Where did you get that idea from? Uh, because I've never heard that. But I'm afraid, Maria, this is going to be like tennis. I'm hitting the ball right back to you uh, to go and ask the, this person, this lady, um, that, you know, what do you mean by us representing the blood of Christ? And where is that based in Scripture? So that would be my question for her. Okay? God bless you, Maria. Thank you so much for the phone call today. Got a couple of open lines for you. Plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to entertain your question. Just pick up your phone and give us a call at 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line if you call us uh, from outside the United States and Canada at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. We read those at the beginning of the program. The email address is openline at ewtn.com. 
That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Guy in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Kathy in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Wednesday with Father Mitch Pacwa. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We're going to give a big congratulations to another one of the uh, EWTN Radio family members, uh, Carolina Catholic Radio, 1270 AM, serving the greater Charlotte area, is celebrating four years as an EWTN affiliate this week. Congratulations to Dave Papandria and his great team at Carolina Catholic Radio from all of us here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Guy, a first-time caller in Burke, Virginia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Guy, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Mitch Pacwa. Hi, Father Mitch. How are you? I'm well, well, thank you. What's um, up? Um, the concept of original sin, is it tied directly to the existence of Adam and Eve? In other words, if there was no Adam and Eve, or if we rely on this concept of many parents, would uh, original sin still apply? Um, it, well, here's... Oh, you mean, and you're thinking of... Uh, whether there was be polygenism, you know that there'd be multiple yes, people. I mean, mm-hmm. um, yeah, is it multiple people? I mean, if, if there's I see what you mean. Yes, Eve, yes, yes, yes. Still... No, it would be uh, something tied to an individual, just as the origin of the human race is tied to two individuals. Uh, are you aware of some of that work on? Uh, uh, the DNA project and human origins. I've heard that they've been able to trace uh, human existence to uh, a set of uh, one and two or two parents, but uh, that's been disputed, and there have been other theories put forth. Well, yeah. and then you look at the Pius XII's concept of you know what we're supposed to believe mm-hmm. about um, the origins of uh, of the universe and and uh, the beginning of man, so it's yeah. kind of confusing. Well, uh, here's a, a couple things. You know, the idea of polygenism is is, is not recent. Um, that Polygenism, by the way, means that the human origin came from many different, uh, a, a number of individuals. And um, that, is, so, and in fact, uh, back be uh, oh, I think in the 30s and 40s, it was sometimes used as a way to explain the different racial groups that the different racial groups had different uh, originators. Uh, that's not uh, you know that that's certainly been uh, debunked uh, because all the races um, 
you know, uh, share the same DNA, the differences in melan- uh, melatonin, uh, melan- uh, um, that those differences show up, um, especially related to where a person or a group is from and the planet and the relationship to the sun. But um, this uh, is, uh, is still all the, the same human race. And, you know, there, of course, there's going to be dispute. That's what science does. I, and I, I'm, I think they should uh, have, you know, these kind of uh, disputes to work through the issues um, carefully. I think that that's a would be a good debate. I'd like to see how the um, geneticists and by biologists um, work through that. But uh, last I heard is that the distinctive DNA of Homo sapiens sapiens goes back to the change in an individual woman and, of course, her mate. Uh, Because it's easier to trace back the mitochondrial DNA of the female side than it is the male. So that's why they say it's a change in an individual woman. Um, And, you know, this would be something that uh, Pius X uh, in Humana Generis is dealing with because it was become, becoming fairly common uh, among some of the anthropologists in his day and before to hold to polygenism. Um, I would, I can't imagine. See, we don't, you know, original sin is not. Uh, uh, understood to be something that is passed on by example, but is inherited. And that would require a common uh, heritage, a uh, common uh, parentage. So um, in that sense, I would see that it's uh, definitely linked to the uh, as being a sin of an individual couple. Next up is Kathy in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Kathy, you are on with Father Mitch. Hello, Father Mitch. Uh, I just wanted to say, first, I so enjoy you on EWTN. I always love listening to you. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate that. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. It's very kind. Um, my question... Oh, no problem. Um my question is, I lost my 22-year-old son two years ago. Oh, I'm so and sorry. as you can imagine, thank you so much. It's really been hard. I really miss yeah. him. It was sudden. You know, we weren't expecting this. And um, <sighs> my parish priest has said, you know, that I will see him again. And my question is, you know, will I be his mother in heaven? Will he be a little child? Or will he be 22? Or I, I guess... You know, I'm just kind of confused as to how that will be. You and know, thank you for taking my call. Well, for, yeah, and, and hang on just a second. Um, first, um, I've not been to heaven, uh, right? And so, you know, I don't have any idea, uh, uh, any precise idea of how another will be perceived. We have to keep in mind that it will be pure spirits. And, you know, it's hard for us to imagine ourselves or anybody else as pure spirit. We always will think 
of each other in human shape. And this is uh, certainly the way uh, St. John, and I would urge you, uh, Kathy, to read the book of Revelation. And and instead of reading it for, you know, trying to figure out when the end times are, I don't think that's a good idea. I think to read it with your question in mind. Pay attention to the way that St. John is able to recognize that there are 24 elders. He recognizes the differences of angels who also are pure spirit. He he recognizes that, that there are different angels with the different plagues and the different vials. He recognizes when the same angel who met me at that point, I talked to him again. He he's very well able to recognize uh, these uh, personages in heaven, and so I look at that and I cannot help but think that we'll be able to do the same as he. Secondly, and this is something I have urged a number of parents who have lost a child. This, I, I'm sure this is the greatest grief. But what I would recommend you spend time with, especially when you pray the glorious mysteries of the rosary, you focus on the assumption of Our Lady. This is when a mother meets her son who had died and gone to heaven ahead of her. He died and rose again from the dead and then ascended into heaven. And at the assumption, she sees him again face to face. And I think for you to contemplate that scene. There are a number of wonderful paintings of the Assumption, and they may help you with your imagination. Um, but I would imagine, I, I, I would meditate on that and imagine what it would be like for Our Lady to see her son again and to keep in mind our Lord wants no less for you and your son. Does that make sense? Yes, that is wonderful. Thank you so very much. I always say the rosary every morning with you. Oh, great. Yes, and we said the glorious mysteries today, so thank you so very, very much. You're welcome. God bless you. You mean that rosary with your much younger brother, that one? (laughs) (laughs) It's... Me thirty. Years. I'm aging on television. <laughs> well, at least you don't have Johnette's problem. You don't have hairdos to go through to chronicle your your age. By no, my. In fact, my sister uh, still complains. You comb your hair the same way you did when you were five years old. <laughs> oh goodness gracious! Next up is Cheryl. She's in Lake Havasu, Arizona, watching us on YouTube today. Cheryl, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Mitch. Good morning. Hello, Father Mitch. How are you? I am. And by the uh, way, speaking of my sister, she lives just south of you in Parker. Oh, my goodness. That's supposed to go to St. Parish at Our Lady of the Light Catholic Church. No, no, no. <laughs> She's down in Parker. Oh, I'll be uh, I think that's St. Joseph's. 
Uh, it's a Sacred Heart Catholic Church. Well, Sacred Heart. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Sacred Heart. Yeah. But anyways, my question is, I had a friend of mine mentioning to me that people commit the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. What, are seven, what are the seven deadly sins, and what do we do? Do we confess them in confession, or what? What are they? Okay. The, there are different kinds of sins. Some of them are more connected with what you do in your body. For instance, lust, that's one of the seven deadly sins. Gluttony, that, you know, from eating too much. Uh, Sloth, where where somebody is lazy. Those are sins we do with our bodies. There are other kind of uh, sins that uh, have to do with uh, possessions, like greed, uh, where you or avarice, uh, where you want somebody else's stuff. Uh, another kind of sin has to do with one's feelings. Wrath is an example of that where you, you know, when people say, I lost my temper, that's not a good thing. You know, your temper, uh, anger is not bad. It has its uses, but it has to be under the control of our reason. Uh, and then you have uh, some sins of the mind. Uh, for instance, pride. Pride is a mental sin. And envy. I envy what other people have. Uh, that's a mental sin. I, you know, I should have that and things like that. So there are different kinds of sin. Now, it's uh, take a look at our own sins and, uh, and the actions. We confess the acts that we do that are lustful. People would confess uh, various uh, acts of uh, adultery, fornication, things like that and pornography, pride, and envy are sometimes more difficult to recognize, especially pride. The, uh, pride is one of those sins that is pretty easy to you know, see in other people, very difficult to see in ourselves. We don't often think of ourselves as prideful. But we, when we do start looking down on others— and instead of looking up to God, that would be uh, pride. When we are slothful, that is lazy, and we fail to do our duties, that would be you, those events are what you confess. When we commit sins of gluttony, we eat too much or drink too much, that's something that we can bring to confession. So it's not that we confess the abstract concept, but the abstract concept is a way to help us identify specific actions that we do that are sinful. So you confess those specific sins. Does that help? Oh, yes, very, very much. It does. Okay. Well, well God good, bless Cheryl. You, Cheryl. God we bless. appreciate the, uh, the phone call today. Um, very timely program tonight on EWTN Live. Yes. With everything going on in the Middle East.
Yes. Uh, Raymond Ibrahim, who is a scholar in, uh, well, you tell us about what you guys are going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Raymond is a, a fine historian. He's doing a lot of work. He's done a lot of study of Islam. His family is from the Middle East, from, uh, well, actually from North Africa, from Egypt. Um, uh, though he's an American. And, um, but he he knows Arabic, studied the languages, and he, uh, of course, is well aware of Islam. Tonight, we are going to take a look at a number of Christians who heroically stood up against jihad. Um, you know, jihad is not new. Um, there have been lots of uh, wars uh, for, between Muslims and Christians. They've tried to invade. They they did invade. They didn't try. They invaded many Christian lands or, or tried to invade more. And there were some truly heroic figures that stood up against the uh, that those invasions. And we're going to take a look at what that meant to be courageous in the face of jihad. That's EWTN Live tonight. Uh, tonight, rather, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Michelle's up next. She's a first-time caller in Fort Worth, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Michelle, you're on with Father Mitch. Hi, Father Mitch. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I just wanted to ask you, it's kind of, it's kind of been distressing me for a little while, about two years or so when mm-hmm. I actually first noticed it, but I was wondering... Why in publications like Magnificat and other Catholic publications they don't capitalize the personal pronouns of God, like yeah. he or him or you? Right, right. When we were growing up, that was the norm. Uh, I don't know about you growing up. You might be very, very young. Uh, but when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s and earlier than that, uh, even the pronouns referring to God were capitalized, and now uh, the style norms. Um, New York Times, in particular, sets the norm for writing style, and publishers oftentimes follow their recommendations. Not always, but often. And, um, you know, when I've written manuscripts with the pronouns capitalized, they went and changed them all. So, um, you know, that's, um, uh, that's has to do with the style books that uh, are out there, and they just, they just do that. So, um, that is, you know, I, I think it's part of, you know, the lessening of the importance of God in our society. That was why it was a sign of respect to capitalize the pronouns referring to God, uh, now they don't do that, and I think it is to communicate disrespect. But the publishers are all doing that now. Uh, Johnny is in Lansing, Michigan, listening on the Ave Maria radio app. Johnny, you're on with Father Mitch. Hi, Father Mitch. How's it going? Well, thank you. What can we do for you today, Johnny? Well, um, first I just want to say I agree with the previous caller about how wonderful you are. I listen to you. Um, whenever I can, so thank you for um, all the help you give us. Oh, my pleasure. Do what I can. Thank you. It's kind. Um, well, I've had this, it's kind of a burning question, but somewhere along the line, um, and I'm probably a year or so younger than you, but I've heard that um, 
the most studied subject of all time was uh, would be the lives of the saints because mm-hmm. of all the research that had been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. And then kind of going along with that, um, you know, how there's the office of the devil's advocate, or there used to be, mm-hmm. uh, just to make sure that uh, all the research was done properly. So mm-hmm. I just... Uh, wondered about some of your comments on that. Okay, yeah, the the office still exists, and the term devil's advocate was never the official name. That was a nickname uh, given to the, the person who basically acts as a prosecutor. You know, just making, the, the church wants to make sure that this person really deserved to be understood as a saint and as a role model. So all of their writings and anything we learn about them to make sure that they were not, um, you know, uh, underneath the surface people who were uh, bad folks. Um, you know, they do great, great research. Um, I don't know that the study of the saints is the most researched topic of all time. I don't know. Um, My own suspicion is actually that there's more research done uh, on the Bible. Um, But I do know that the lives of the saints are extremely well-researched. Um, when I did my documentary on the Vatican secret archives, all of that material is there, and, and there's a lot of material on the this, this saints. And then there's also a group that was started by the Jesuits to research all the saints of the past just to make sure we have good material. They're called the Bolandists. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, if you look up Bolandists, B O L L. A-N-D-I-S-T, uh, the Bolandist, they are often looking for people to help them do research and to help finance their research. Uh, they do some very, very—we did a show on them once, and um, they do really fine, fine job. So I would strongly uh, recommend giving them support. Next stop is the great state of Missouri. Marie is a first-time caller listening on Covenant Radio. Marie, you're on with Father Mitch. Yes, Father Mitch. Thank you, thank you. Excuse me. I'm kind of nervous, so (laughs) forgive me. Um, I heard you say to a caller a little earlier, it's okay to be angry. Well, I'm kind of angry. Yeah, about what? (laughs) But about what? Well, my husband and I are... um, in our, well, we're in our late 60s, and so we went to a funeral home and, you know, discussed all the procedures and everything. Mm -hmm. Why is everything so expensive? Where in the Bible does it say we have to spend a ton of money to be buried in the ground? uh, Ma'am, I I don't know why you would uh, look to the Bible for that. You have to look to the funeral director's. This is something that has happened in recent years. This has nothing to do with the Bible, church teaching, or anything like that. This has to do with, you know, what is uh, oftentimes regulated by the state states. Yeah. Each state regulates 
what they do. If um, instead of asking where is it in the Bible, ask where is it in your state law book? Because that's where the regulations for funerals are made. Now, a lot of times the states make regulations because there have been uh, uh, two things. One, health risks about uh, poor quality burial and that uh, uh, sick people's bodies were able to bring infection to certain areas, so they want to protect against that. And secondly, sometimes uh, funeral home directors were, um, you know, uh, fraudulent, and so they <laughs> that they regulate that. But the expenses for most of that comes from the, um, uh, the state. Yeah, the state usually will put a limit on them. Yeah. But I think the funeral directors... Well, and then, well, that's the other thing, too. You know, funeral directors make more money when you spend more money on, you know, better quality stuff. Um, you know, so that's that's why it is a good idea to go there ahead of time. Uh, you, you don't want to make those decisions when you're in the moment of grieving, because it's so emotional. And this is, if I'm not mistaken, this is one of the considerations that was taken under advisement when the church sort of revised its policy on cremation, isn't it? Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. So so th- does that help, Marie? Well, yes, we do stop. it does. I'm calmed down now. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, I want you to, be, I don't mind you being angry. Just go after the right people. <laughs> Um, you know, I'll give you a minute here, Father Mitch, but John in Greenville, South Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130, wants to know what the church believes about demons. Uh, the demons are fallen angels, and they sided with Satan against God, and they, like Satan, hate us, they hate each other, they hate God, hate kind of... Wait a minute, that's not, is that Congress? No, that's that's the demons, the demons. And so uh, with that kind of hate, they want us to go to hell. So that's what we say, and we say avoid them, and if they do get in, cast them out. Would you leave us with a blessing? Lord, bless you all and keep you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Mitch Paqua, producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.